This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. You've got us now until midday. In the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, buddy. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm pretty good. Fit, Excellent. Fit, you know, well, I'm tired. You saw me in the kitchen earlier. So, you know. <laughs> I feel your pain. <laughs> Dr. Jen's here, still bouncing around. She loves the theme. Yeah, I'm fired up. I'm not tired at all. I'm just excited. It's science. Yeah. <laughs> right, I'll just bring some enthusiasm to the show You guys can all just go next door Bye Sp- Speaking of enthusiasm, as usual, a segue has presented its, uh, No, hang on Oh, Chris, can you, you know, I, I think there must be a standard amount of enthusiasm in the studio yeah. um, And it's not always uniformly spread at the moment Jen's got most of it that's, that's fine That's perfectly okay yeah, there's I'm sucking you dry, boys <laughs> some, some, uh, That's a good comment for radio yeah. <laughs> Alright, uh, we are going to talk some Side, so we're going to just leave Jen alone there for a moment and let her calm down. Dr. Ewan, uh, some news. What do you got for us for this yeah, week? Yeah, I'd like to report on a really interesting study that came out of Nature this week from Tobler and um, Alan Cooper and colleagues, where they looked at, um, I guess, Aboriginal connection with Australia. So we know that Aboriginal people have been in Australia roughly 50,000 years, and they arrived via Papua New Guinea, when Papua New Guinea and Australia were still connected by land. Um, but there's been a lot of conjecture about, I guess, uh, where Aboriginal people lived, for how long and how they spread through the continent um and that's really important both i guess just in terms of our general understanding but more importantly for aboriginal people as well it has a lot of ramifications for things like native title their culture and so forth so it's really really important to understand this and it's, um, a, it's a big continent it is a big continent <laughs> <laughs> so did you just notice that Shane? well i'm just saying you could, you could understand if they didn't cover the whole continent you know Early on, because and there's really no reason to go into parts of it. And this is what's remarkable. So they, they took... Sorry, I'm talking about South Australia. Western Sydney. Oh. <laughs> so they took 111 um, samples of hair, and I should say they had permission from the Aboriginal people themselves mm-hmm. to do this study, so that was a very important part of the study. Aboriginal people were absolutely involved with this. Um, hair samples and looked at the mitochondrial genome, and so they could look at information that relates to the mother because only the maternal... Um, it's maternally inherited information on the mitochondrial genome mm. as opposed to paternally. You'd have to look at nuclear DNA. But anyway, so they looked at 111 samples and you say that they spread quickly. Well, they actually did. So okay. they came into Australia roughly 50,000 years ago and then within about 2,000 years, we think, they pretty much moved around the whole continent. So they went... Um, right around the western coast, so across the top and then down around Western Australia and then down the east coast and we think they met somewhere in South Australia. Um, but what's also really interesting is that once they had sort of moved around the whole of Australia, they then really stayed put in most of the places that they were there for. And that's quite amazing when you think about it because huge changes have happened in Australia over mm. 50,000 years, including mm. an ice age that was pretty yep. nasty. So about 20,000 <laughs> years ago, really cold, so about 10 degrees on average colder, really dry, so not much rainfall, less rainfall, really dusty and a lot less plant growth. So quite tricky times to live. And so this, um, I guess, is an explanation why Aboriginal people have such strong, deep connection with the Australian landscape because they've had to survive through Mm. quite dramatic changes. Yeah, at its worst. And so 
you know, they've had to really live with the environment and that's why they're sort of so strongly connected to the environment. So I thought it was a really interesting study. And just, I guess, one side note too about the study that's, I think, really um, encouraging is that it will also help some of these people from the stolen generation, which is where these samples came from, I should say, in the first place, so from Queensland and South Australia, to potentially reconnect with parts of Australia where they were taken away from because mm. it can trace back their ancestry. So a really interesting study. Question, Dr Ewan. Um, if these hair samples were taken in the 20s, what were they taken for? What were they actually trying to study? Yeah, so I, I, I should actually know more about that, but I think that these, were samples that, these were samples that were collected by, obviously, European people yeah, at the yep, time. Yep. So I guess back then, and you could argue that's whether it's appropriate or not in the first place, that people were collecting right. this information. Um, and that's a really interesting point, actually, because these samples are actually post-European arrival. So yes. that is a limitation of the study as yes. well, is that quite dramatic changes could already have occurred because um, people were already being taken away from their country pretty much almost from day one when Europeans mm. arrived. And so quite a lot of changes could have occurred even after these samples were collected, sorry, prior to when these samples yes. were collected. And the other thing we should bear in mind is it's 111 samples and it's only m- mitochondrial DNA. So we need to look at nuclear DNA to also mm. look at the paternal um, um, differences and mm. so forth. So, um, but still, an amazing study. So, yeah. yeah, I, I just I, I I love the way genetics used no, across the, across the world to determine population distributions. Yeah. I think and, and and that historical element mm, that absolutely is gorgeous because in the past, you know, sort of like the the way that was done was through cultural artifacts. Yeah, and you just couldn't really you know go into that to the depth. And now yeah. we're able to do it, which is just you know looking at migrations across the world yeah. over such a long period is extraordinary. So yeah, good work, uh, Dr. Jen. Well, I want to continue with the ancient DNA theme because it's just so cool and more research that again came out partly out of Australia this week and published in Nature. And I want to talk about Neanderthals, our favourite ancestors that have been much discussed and, um, you know, they don't always get the best rap in you Why did media. you just look at Chris when you were talking about <laughs> Because Neanderthals. he's so gorgeous. I thought she, <laughs> I was gonna say she, she looked yeah. at... In a caveman. Yeah. Way, yeah. I looked at all three of you, actually. That's true, you did, to be fair. He does have, he does have very prominent eyebrows. <laughs> anyway, so this work, this work took advantage of the fact that Neanderthals didn't tend to be very good at brushing their teeth. No surprises there. And so when you get plaque on your teeth and you don't brush it off, it turns into what's called dental calculus. Mm. So think very hard material on your teeth, so hard that it lasts 40,000 years. And what's stuck in this dental calculus is DNA. So you can extract the DNA both from the bacteria in the mouth but also from the food that these Neanderthals were eating. Oh, yum. Yeah, pretty awesome. So they looked at one skull from prehistoric Belgium and two skulls from prehistoric Spain. So obviously they weren't Belgium and Spain back then, both around 40,000 years old. Um, And what they found was that the individual from Belgium had a diet of woolly rhino, sheep and mushrooms with no evidence at all of plants, which is very interesting. Whereas individuals in Spain were eating moss bark mushrooms and no meat. Wow. Pretty interesting, you know, so this is not that far away from each other, mm. maybe a thousand mm. K or something, and the diets were very different. Now, mm. okay, it's only three individuals. We can't say that's all they ever ate, but pretty interesting. Yeah, Will- woolly be. mammoth and mushroom sounds much more appealing. A woolly rhino. A woolly rhino, Doesn't sorry. It? Yeah. Doesn't it? Yes. It does. With a, yes, with a boss jus. <laughs> that's right. But they did make the point that almost all of the, the uh, DNA that you get out of this dental calculus, Dr. Shane's just losing it <laughs> over in the corner. Sorry, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of the emails from our vegan cohort of listeners <laughs> that are going to come to me later today as a result of this hey, um, it's the paleo you know, diet. Mu- mushroom sauce that you guys are talking about was, on your rhino. It was 40,000 years ago. We didn't have a lot of control. 
That's true. <laughs> I must yeah. say that to me, my, my first thought when I, when I was reading about this was, see kids, it's important to look after your teeth. Otherwise, you might end up part of a scientific That's study right. thousands of years from now. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I just love the fact they can tell all these things from the yeah. basically oh, yeah. plaque. But they do admit that, that of all the DNA they extracted, only 0.3% of it is telling us anything about the food they ate. The rest of it is just the bacteria in the mouth, so we can learn lots of other things. Mm. And a very interesting one is that one of the Spanish skulls is from a teenage boy who um, appeared to have a really nasty dental abscess in his mouth so it left a scar basically on his skull. They could also tell that he had a really nasty gastrointestinal parasite from the DNA and what they also found was evidence that he'd been eating poplar plants. Now poplar contains a natural painkiller called salicylic acid which is really closely related to the active ingredient in aspirin. Mm. So they're suggesting that this individual knew enough about natural medicines to be medicating himself with a painkiller by Mm. eating poplar. And they also found um, DNA from the penicillium fungus, which is where we get penicillin from. So 40,000 years before we knew anything about penicillin, this particular person who clearly had a whole lot of pain in their life was essentially medicating. Now, one of the researchers said, or somebody made a comment and said, well, look, you can't prove that this was, that the penicillin was from medication, you know, it was a form of mm-hmm. medicine because penicillin forms as a mould on, on yeah. any food, basically. But they only found that the, the, clearly, the individual who clearly was dealing with a lot of pain Pain was the one who they found evidence mm. of penicillin. The other one who lived in exactly the same place, there was no evidence of penicillin at all. So you think if all their food was coated in mould, yeah. then you would have found it in the other person. So it's just amazing what we can find out from DNA, um, both diet, you know, from the, from the point of view of what they were eating, but also this tantalising possibility that they knew something about painkillers and, um, and antibiotics. They, absolutely, and they would have been pot smokers guaranteed because there was no... Gun- <laughs> There was, there was no government back then to say no. <laughs> it was growing naturally. I guarantee they were, wrap, they were wrapping that rhino meat and a couple of leaves and just chewing on down. It. Oh, Dr. Shane. <laughs> Would have happened. Would have happened. Uh, Chris KP, speaking of pot smokers. <laughs> yes, this is just, this is great. Um, I, I feel right in my element. Why is it every week, poor Chris... It's you know, hammered by everybody else. He takes it so well, that's it's, why. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty much because of who I am. Um, <laughs> that's okay. Um, well, okay, I, I can't... I've got nothing to offer in terms of um, diet or, in fact, dental hygiene. Uh, yeah, <laughs> DNA, studies. perhaps? I do have some DNA, sort of. But I thought I, thought I would uh, embrace a study I, I read about um, this week with bumblebees. Um, because... Some, some, some scientists in, uh, in London have done a very cool thing. They basically, they want to look at how well bumblebees can learn stuff, uh, and so they, they try to train them. And it's a, essentially when you train an animal, what you usually do is you give them some kind of reward for getting it right, whatever that is. And bees like sweet, sugary stuff. So they essentially said, well, there's a, there's a little tiny ball here. We'd like you to move this ball to a particular spot on a, not a board, and if you get it there, we'll give you this nice, sweet, sugary thing. And it's that. And so, how do you? But so, how do you I was yeah. expecting him to say words with friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no. just a ball. It's just a ball. Okay. I know. Yeah, it's. Ex- I know it's, it's not, not glamorous. Sure, they're playing soccer. Well, but or so something. wait for it. Oh no, no, it was a little sort of triangle, sort of shaped thing with a spot in the middle. And and then you think, okay, so how do you actually show them where it's meant to be? And how do you, how do you show them what you want them to do? Well, you do it with a fake bee on a stick. I was going to say <laughs> bee on a stick. Yep. <laughs> Finally. I'm reason to use the phrase bee on a stick. Yeah. So, so they go to a fake bee and they move the little ball. And what's amazing is that within minutes 
in some cases within five minutes, the real bumblebee's going, oh, you want that over there? No swim. Mm. And it moves a little ball over there and gets its treat. Bees Very cool. Smart. So then they're, they're thinking, okay, so if you learn how to do this, what happens if you don't see a bee do it? The ball moves itself. So they then put a magnet underneath with a sort of mm. bit of, you know, iron inside the ball, magnet under the table and move the ball sort of ghostly-wise into its spot. Those bees had a lot more trouble. Many of them didn't learn it at all. So it was important to them. They could learn very quickly, but it actually helped them to see another bee doing this. And then they were totally all over it. Mm. So yeah, and this it's it's the yeah, the researchers claim that it's essentially the first time we've seen that kind of behaviour in insects, uh, a learning and a learning from others' behaviour. Uh, so yeah, bees don't just dance; they don't just make honey. They essentially learn stuff, which means that we can manipulate them to do our bidding. <laughs> Isn't that what ants do, though? Like, I mean, I've seen ants. You look at the one in the back. Go, I'm following this guy. <laughs> oh, but, but they leave they leave trails yeah, though. That's they leave, fair trails. Oh, they leave trails. Yeah, again yeah, trails. Yeah. Okay. Having yeah. said that, again trails. It's the ants, damn it. <laughs> Having said that, I wouldn't be at all surprised if you're right. That they uh, and the fact that we've shown it in bees doesn't mean that bees do it exclusively. It means we were slow learners. Yeah, we yeah. now realise insects can do this stuff. Yeah, there's no doubt we're slow learners. Uh-huh. <sighs> Should we make an environmental comment there, Ewan? No, no. Let's uh, make a long. Very strong <laughs> Slow learners. Uh, we're going to take a break for some music, folks. I've got some uh, other news I want to talk about, but we're going to do that at the end of the show because it involves uh, virtual reality. And um, and we couldn't cope? No, I just figured we might have more time at the end of the show. So. <laughs> and, you know, to be truthful, I'm not prepared. No, <laughs> no I'm ready to go. But uh, we, we'll just see because we have a really amazing guest coming up in a few moments from NASA and after that another one from WA. Uh, I think WA is still attached to Australia. After last night, it is. And uh, he'll be talking about bees mm. again, which will be even hey. cool. They've done some really cool stuff. So it's a bit of a bee, a bee day. You're listening to 3 Triple R. Here's some music. Surely it's an A day. <laughs> it's a bee day. <laughs> bee day. <laughs> I knew uh, Chris would end up with toilet humor sooner or later. There we go. <laughs> Here's some music for you, folks. We'll be back in a moment. 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, you're listening to 3 R, and I'm here in the studio today with Matthew Noyes, who's a software lead at the NASA Johnson Space Center's Hybrid Reality Lab. Matthew, welcome to Triple R. Uh, hey there, I'm glad to be here. Now, first of all, let's uh, hear a bit about your story. Tell us about your background, how you ended up at NASA, because it's something that, you know, a lot of us as kids were hoping to do, but very few of us get there. Sure. Well, it's a pretty long and convoluted story. Um, I first visited the Kennedy Space Center Visitors Complex when I was five years old on a trip to Disney World, and ever since then, I've just wanted to work for NASA. I've always really been into science and math, and uh, I ended up enrolling in a university program in computer science. And about a year after I started that program, uh, I got accepted to an internship at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, it's kind of interesting the way things work at NASA. Um, They do bring in people with industry experience into government positions. But pretty much the vast majority of their hiring these days is coming in directly from college through something they call the co-op program, where students and the government enter into an agreement where for three or more semesters during their college studies, they will come and work full-time in a full capacity, as if they're a full employee at NASA. Um, so I ended up not getting into that program the first time, and uh, I just reapplied again and again. I think it was four, five times before I got in again. Uh, still didn't get into the co-op program. They were just regular internships. Uh, I ended up transferring schools, changing majors, so I could extend my graduation date, so I could keep applying, and eventually I got in. And, uh, you know, after seven years, I finally graduated and ended up at NASA. 
Geez, that's quite a quite a history. I mean, uh, you have to describe your bedroom for me when you're a kid because uh, we spoke to Terry Burtz last year, and mm-hmm. and when he, he basically described my bedroom from you know being a child. I mean, I think all of us have this same bedroom. I mean, what was yours yours like at five years old? You going to NASA, hoping to work there? Yeah, well, uh, I always used to read a lot of books. Uh, I was really into science fiction. Um, I would read books about the planets. Uh, it was funny. Uh, sometimes we would take you know exams at school where they would ask a question like. What's the hottest planet in the solar system? So I put Venus, which is the correct answer. And the teacher comes back and she says, no, it's Mercury. That's the closest planet to the sun. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those ones that I think gets everyone, doesn't it? So mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Um, now, let's talk a bit about what you're doing at NASA because I think if we, if we pull people's minds back about 30 years and use the term virtual reality, mm-hmm. everyone would 30 years ago be going, what? That sounds really cool. And NASA was doing that stuff back then. Mm-hmm. But you work in something called the Hybrid Reality Lab. Now, this mm-hmm. is a whole different game. So first of all, talk a bit about the contrast between that technology and and the old virtual technology or what's just getting into homes now. I mean, what, what's different between these two? Sure. So NASA, um, specifically the Johnson Space Center, has been using virtual reality technology to augment their training capabilities for about 20 years now. And usually it was used to familiarize the astronauts with the exterior of the space station or teaching them how to use the SAFER system, which is the emergency jackpot they would use to get back to the station if their tether mm-hmm. broke. Um, but it was pretty much purely a virtual experience. Everything that you experienced in the simulation was all rendered inside of a computer. Um, there was very few actual physical objects you would interact with. Um, they did have something called the Charlotte robot, which you basically move it around in 3D space and it would simulate inertia, like you were moving a big heavy object, like the Hubble mm. Space Telescope. Yeah. Um, but Physical mock-ups were pretty much a completely separate domain for training than virtual reality. What hybrid reality is, is a combination of those two things, where we're interacting with physical objects in the real world that are being tracked in 3D space, and that way you can feel an object in your hand. In our case, we 3D print a very inexpensive mock-up of whatever our real tool would be. And then inside the virtual reality headset, we can project the photorealistic graphics of what the real object looks like on top of your view. So the, the domains of sight and sound are in virtual reality, but the domain of touch is in physical reality. So this, this sounds to me like an incredible connection between software and, and actual physical objects. So because if, if I think it's something simple, just like a sphere, I mean, the, the idea that you could 3D print that, sit it on a table, but then have basically chop off my vision and project the vision using using a television screen, essentially, mm-hmm. and have that interacting with when I touch that. that. That seems like an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. Well, it's actually not, and, and that's because of the power of Lighthouse. Uh, this is a new tracking technology uh, developed with uh, Valve and HTC that they mm-hmm. put into their HTC Vive headset. And uh, it's it's really scalable compared to the way motion capture used to be done. In the old days, you'd have to have, you know, 12 to 24 cameras placed around the environment uh, that were watching your every move, and it would be doing complicated computer vision algorithms to get the position and orientation of whatever is being tracked. And each one of those cameras could be five to $10,000. But now with Lighthouse technology, using just two emitters that sit on opposite ends of the room, and they shoot out light, sort of like a lighthouse. It's a little spinning drum with lasers that sweep across the room. the tracked object picks up those lasers and is able to resolve its position 
much more inexpensively. And each one of those base stations, rather than being a $5,000 camera, is only about $139. Mm. So presumably with that, um, I mean, I, I know they work with the two, but, mm-hmm. but you could have incredibly complex scenes mm-hmm. that you could pick up and track. And I mean, we, we're talking about simple objects like hammers and so forth here, but mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure if they use hammers in space. <laughs> Let's call it a, a wrench. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you could have an extremely complicated environment tracked in the same way. Presumably, there's no difference, really. Yeah, in traditional motion capture, there's a computational limit to the amount of things you can track mm-hmm. just because computer vision is very intensive. But with the Lighthouse system, it's only using basic trigonometry to resolve positions. So the limit you get to tracked objects is not a computational one. It's a physical one because... You know, if you have too many objects in the scene, they might block each other from viewing the base stations that emit the tracking lasers. Mm. It, it, it's interesting. Um, what, so when you put all this together, uh, I mean, I, I have this s- sort of scene in my head where you, you first put a, a, one of the potential or actual astronauts in in this scenario. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- what's their response like? It's like, wow, this is real, or is it like, you know, some of the guys when they first got in some of the simulators were like, there's nothing like the reality. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, wh- what's what's that first experience they get? Is it is it, holy crap, this is really good? Yeah, that's pretty much exactly sums up how they feel. Um, I'd say maybe nine out of ten astronauts who try it out are just completely blown away by the experience. Um, we're actually working with uh, a company, Opeg Media Group, that is uh, based right here in Australia. And they're developing a video game called Earthlight uh, that simulates what it's like to be an astronaut. And being a game design studio, they are extremely... Um, talented when it comes to rendering graphics Mm -hmm. so they've created an earth model for us that looks pretty much exactly like what earth really looks like so we we have astronauts who would spend all of their free time in the cupola in the international space station looking out at the world around them and when they go in to the virtual reality cupola that we put together and they sit down and they look down at the earth around them it's like they're actually up there again really yeah Mm -hmm. and and, and, but so you, you can simulate the, the physical sensations and mm-hmm. so forth, but, but what about things like microgravity and, and that, that change in, in the way they feel those, those parameters on their body? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've seen a lot of um, footage of training the astronauts in, in swimming pools, for example, so mm-hmm. that the buoyancy takes care of the, the sort of gravitational effects they would normally feel on the body. I mean, how do you include that into the simulation? Presumably that's a big part of the experience. Yes, so um, there's a project at NASA called the Active Response Gravity Offload System, and it's basically an intelligent crane that attaches to your back and offloads your body weight and accounts for momentum in your vertical Mm -hmm. and horizontal direction. So you can feel like you're actually in lunar gravity, Martian gravity, microgravity, or anywhere in between. So the sort of end goal is to create scaffolding with all the handrails on the outside of the ISS. You strap yourself into Argos, and you're pulling yourself through the real world And you're actually moving through space just like you would if you were up on the ISS. But because you've got the headset on, you see all the graphics of the ISS moving around you. Mm -hmm. And and the you mentioned the um, just the quality of this stuff. I mean, these days people are used to incredible quality even in their homes. You know, ultra Mm -hmm. HD stuff. I mean, how how high is the quality of the imagery that they're seeing? Is is it HD? I mean, can you can -hmm. you look at it and say, yeah, I'm clearly looking at at an image here, or, or is it or is it that realistic? Well, so there is a little bit of a limitation in terms of the display resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because you have basically a smartphone screen that's placed a few inches away from mm. your face. So it's going to be a little bit blurry, and that's going to improve over time. But in terms of the actual data for the graphics, uh, we're using 3D scanning technology to take real objects and build up the physical geometry in extremely high-resolution textures for everything. So you know, if you're holding something really close to your face in hybrid reality, mm. it, it looks real. If it's a little bit further away, it's going to be a little bit fuzzy. But as the next generation of consumer VR headsets comes out, um, the system will be able to scale with that very easily. Mm. Now, you've got a million things that you could train people on on these systems. I mean, where are you focusing? Because I can imagine, you know, there's there's the launch. There's the yeah. I mean, from from day one, mm-hmm. it is just one massive training cycle for these these people, mm-hmm. and you, you you can't do it all. I mean, mm-hmm. wh- where's the focus in terms of this hybrid technology and actually training them at the moment? Sure. In terms of training, I think we're focusing right now on the ISS interior. Mm-hmm. Uh, VR has been used uh, mainly for the exterior portion. Uh, we've never really done training on operations inside, whether it be carrying out experiments or conducting repair um, missions or, or, say, repairing the exercise equipment. Uh, so I think there's a lot of fruitful applications there. Uh, we're also branching out outside of astronaut training into things like improving the engineering design cycle. If you're creating a space habitat, for example, um, you might put the habitat on a planetary surface where there's gravity, or you might put it up in orbit where there's no gravity. Mm. And changing the gravitational environment is going to affect the design of the habitat. So if we can have a hybrid reality system where we build up a physical structure uh, that you can walk around in, you know, hit different parts of the environment, do fit checks, etc., uh, then you can uh, uh, use the virtual world to simulate different types of gravity and how the astronauts would interact inside of that environment given the different gravitational um, constants. Mm. We, we, we often talk about the, the training element for them going up into space. and presumably, I mean, the Mars missions and so forth in, mm-hmm. in the future will require you know, huge amounts of this, I can imagine. Mm-hmm. But what about once they're up there? I mean, you mentioned uh, the International Space Station. I mean, presumably on long, long-haul flights, you know, real long-haul, not what you're about to experience back to the US, but, mm-hmm. but you know, heading to Mars where something takes nine months, I would imagine this sort of technology would be very valuable in terms of crew morale and actually keeping them just functional during that period. And, and mm-hmm. maybe it's them walking around in a you know a, a land-based desert from Earth. But mm-hmm. but is that the intent as well to sort of have the the other the other side of the coin beyond the training, but the, mm-hmm. the psychological aspects? Yeah. So uh, we've talked a lot about integrating this kind of technology with the exercise equipment. So mm-hmm. um, you know, there's the technical aspect of it where you can view your vital signs. You can you know have have a rendering of yourself that you're competing against to improve your performance. But on the other side of things, for crew morale, uh, we could, say, render out uh, their favorite running track when they were back on Earth. Mm. Or maybe uh, allow them to do exercises in a, in a gym-like setting with virtual actors around them. Or maybe they're inside of their home. It's sort of like nostalgia therapy that you would get for dementia patients. Yeah. And, and have, there, have there been many studies on that? I mean, because we, you know, we hear about, I know there was the, um, I think the, the Mars 200, the Mars 500 program, the, the, mm-hmm. the Russians did and so forth, where they, they essentially put people in a box for, for a mm-hmm. couple of years. But how how much do we know about that in terms of the psychological difficulties? I mean, you know, the moon the moon seemed like a long way, you know, mm-hmm. three days. Um, but but Mars is a whole different game, and everyone's mm-hmm. eager for people to get to Mars. But nine months in a hostile environment where everything outside, you know, two inches of, of metal wants to kill you mm-hmm. is 
is a different scenario. How much do we know about that at this point? I think it's a a fruitful area for research. Um, Most of the insight that we're getting into applications of VR for Mm. astronaut training comes from how um, nostalgia therapy was used to treat dementia patients. So, you know, I think in the coming years, uh, as a software engineer, I'm, I'm more concerned about developing the tool mm. rather than sort of what the end user wants. So we go around, we talk to psychologists, uh, human performance professionals uh, to figure out the application areas that we can best support. Mm. Now, let's talk about the software a minute because that's, mm-hmm. that's your, your main area. You know, you're the software lead. Mm-hmm. These days, there are kids doing coding in, in primary schools. I mean, NASA has a whole section on, on its website that mm-hmm. helps uh, kids learn coding. Tell us a bit about the level of coding that you, that you you guys actually do, because back in the day, I remember when I came through and did did my physics degree. I mean, everything was in Fortran and C plus plus. These mm-hmm. horrid languages that you had to had to learn back then. But I see people you're know, moving little pictures around these days and, mm-hmm. and calling it coding. I mean, what's it what's it like to have to code something up? this complicated sure so uh, we're using the unreal engine to do all of our rendering it's an open source engine Mm -hmm. and it's got two different ways of doing coding you can either dive right in and do c plus plus object-oriented programming the traditional way Mm -hmm. um, which is usually more performant and is easier to maintain but then you also have uh, what's called blueprint scripting where you're dragging the pictures around and you're you're dragging lines of execution between the little function bubbles Mm -hmm. Um, so we actually do use that to help uh, prototype different behavior because it's so fast to do that. And once we're happy with the prototype, then we'll convert that into C++ code. Mm. And and describe for us, Matthew, what's it like working at NASA? I mean, I, I have this image of you sort of, you know, walking down the corridor, high-fiving John Clem and these guys. But, you know, I mean, I imagine that's not the reality. I mean, you know, maybe it's a dim, dark computer lab somewhere in the basement where yeah. they've shoved you guys. I mean, what, what's it actually like working over there? It must be an amazing um, facility overall. Uh, well, it... The actual facilities themselves uh, date back to the you know 1950s, mm-hmm. 1960s. Yeah. So it has a very classic feel to it. Um, I'm sure if you went to a modern Facebook or Google campus that it would be much more high-tech in terms of the infrastructure. Um, but in terms of the actual experience, it's an extremely varied, uh, interesting job. You get to meet a lot of really awesome people uh, involved in human spaceflight. The whole campus is organized like... A university. So there's mm-hmm. buildings everywhere. You know, they actually have these little bikes you can ride around to get from point to point because of how big it is. Mm. Now, this, uh, this technology you guys are working on at the moment, very similar to the, the virtual reality uh, technology from years ago. You know, a lot of this stuff started with NASA in, in the way mm-hmm. it was uh, you know, working on training its, its people. How, how long do you think it'll be before people sort of are seeing this in their, in their home environments? I mean, people can buy 3D printers now mm-hmm. you know, online. All this stuff is available. I mean, it seems like the next step, do you think uh, there'll be these sort of hybrid reality systems in the near future in our houses where we're sort of walking around, you know, a.k.a. Star Trek, mm-hmm. sort of uh, holodeck-style environments? Is that, is that far away? I don't think it's far away at all. Um, HTC recently... Uh, talked about their new Vive tracker system. Mm-hmm. And they basically just took the tracking portion off of their input controllers and are selling them to uh, users who can then place them on third-party peripherals. So rather than just holding up a generic controller with a little virtual gun in your video game, uh, you could actually take your tracker and put it onto a plastic controller in the shape of a gun. Right. So then you could go around and, and play your, your video games as if you were actually in the simulation. Mm. 
these these things in the homes have um, have gone so far. I mean, the the, the gaming um, capacity of these machines is extraordinary now. The processing capacity is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I can imagine in a, in a similar way on the ISS and so forth. I mean, processing capacity is is limited, and mm-hmm. you can't just you know whack on another hard drive whenever you need it and so forth. But mm-hmm. how much is that a restriction for the sort of work you're doing? Because I can imagine you know if you if you're getting it right for something like the ISS, that's when it becomes a viable technology mm-hmm. for the home where where you don't need a su- supercomputer to run these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have had VR on the space station itself. Um, they are running on laptops from around the mid-2000s. So we can't achieve the same level of performance that we could with a desktop computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are trying to improve the quality while not hurting the performance of our simulation, we want to be able to allow people at some point to download an experience like this and, and play it in their homes. Uh, outreach is a, is a very important part of our mission, uh, arguably, arguably just as much as the space exploration aspect. So we're working really hard to make the simulation playable for everyone. Mm. And and just, I mean, finally, I just want to come back to where we started, which is how you, how you actually got into NASA. I mean, mm-hmm. how many how many people from from Australia and around the world do you do you work with? I mean, is it is a really is it a diverse sort of group of people there, or is it is it very hard to get in there if you're not not an American? Well, at this point, in order to work as a government employee at NASA, you need to have a U.S. citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, we can work with contractors if we set up a space act agreement. I mentioned OPEG Media Group earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. We're in the process of setting up a space act agreement with them, so we can uh, more formalize some of our dealings. Um, but you know, I certainly think that cognitive diversity is a very important thing in spaceflight. It is an endeavor that is about all of humanity and not any one given nation. So you know, if there's any way that we can continue to work with the people of the world, including Australia, we will strive for that. I think that's a great place where we can stop. Thank you. Matthew, thanks so much for chatting to us and uh, have a safe uh, journey home. Thank you. Matthew Noyes is the software lead at the NASA Johnson Space Center's Hybrid Reality Lab. You're listening to 3RRR. 3RRR. Three uh, we're back, folks. You're listening to 3RRR, of course. And uh, we're hoping on the phone now we have uh, Don Bradshaw, who's the Chair of Zoology and, and the Senior Honorary Research Fellow in the University of Western Australia. Don, can you hear us? Yes, loud and clear. Now, you're doing some uh, really interesting work, actually, on bees, on their metabolism, and how what we do as humans is starting to affect this. Can you give us a bit of a, an idea, first of all, of what, what you were thinking would be the answer to this when you first started? Um, what, what, would, what would you expect to happen to bees when they're in the environment that we've sort of heavily started to impact on? Well, I suppose we, we originally thought that if the environment had been intensely modified and made more difficult from the uh, bees' point of view, in other words, fewer things to feed on, we would imagine that they would have to work a lot harder uh, to get their food. Yep. In fact, we found this wasn't, it was the, actually the reverse when we did the study. We became interested in this sort of work because of mine restorations. Uh, often after a mine's gone through an area and, and taken out a lot of the um, subsoil, and etc., etc., they they're obligated to uh, restore the environment as, as close as possible to original. So there's a big process of replanting and putting things back again. But very often this looks very good. It, it comes back, everything grows, uh, it looks uh, it looks excellent. 
but in fact uh, often uh, the flowers and the trees will start to flower but there will be no fertilization and no seed formation mm. and so it looked as if uh, although there's a cosmetic recovery um, there seems to be a problem with the pollinators not being able to perhaps get into the area or finding the area unsatisfying from their point of view so we thought the uh, way to sort of analyze this thing was to try to measure uh, the energy expenditure of the bees or the other pollinators whatever they might be and see whether there's some energetic limitation to them being able to access the resources or whatever limited resources were available mm. uh, that meant we needed to develop a method to measure their their uh, metabolic rate uh, particularly when they're around flying which is not not actually very easy to do well, can you tell us a bit um don about how you do that because they're not exactly we're not talking about wallabies here they're small <laughs> they're small creatures how do you measure measure the metabolism of a bee while in flight well, the reason we were able to do this because we had been spending, uh, my wife and I, we'd spent about 20 years working with honey possums. Mm-hmm. Honey possums are tiny little marsupials, weigh about 9 or 10 grams, and they feed in, uh, exclusively on nectar and pollen from banksia blossoms. And it took us a long time, but we developed a method to measure their metabolic rate when they were free-ranging. And uh, to do this, we used a radioactive isotope, an isotope known as rubidium, rubidium-86, which is a, a gamma-emitting isotope, rather like potassium. And we found that the turnover of rubidium correlates very nicely with the turnover of oxygen. And uh, we were able to establish that this method worked quite well. So what we did is to scale it down. So the, the honey possum weighs about 10 grams. The uh, bee weighs 50 milligrams. But we managed, we managed to scale the whole method down and uh, we fed the bees with a a honey uh, solution that was laced with our isotopes and then the nice thing about the bees they're so small that to count them you don't need to take a a blood sample from them or a hemolymph sample you can just pop them on top of a Geiger counter and just measure the whole body (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic and then the trick then is to uh, you have to put a number on your bees so we had these little tiny little tags that we we stuck on the back of the bees getting stung in the process and you let them go and if you're lucky you get some back wow (laughs) and that's what we did we actually we only ended up we only had a total of 70 bees i think all in all that we had uh, labeled up with our isotope and we had two different habitats. One was a what we call a pristine habitat. It was a Banksia woodland with full of Banksia trees and other things which looked ideal. And then we had another area which had originally been a pine plantation that had been uh, clear felled and then burned and it looked absolutely horrible. And mm. so these two habitats were a considerable distance apart. And we had three hives we, we put in one and three hives we put in the other. And we had marked bees in each hive and let it all go. We, they, they stayed out there for a week and then at the end of the week we recaptured them and then to see what happened to our bees and to our surprise as say the in the uh, the the what you might call the disturbed habitat the burn habitat where we expected they their metabolic rate would be higher because they'd be searching farther and further for food mm-hmm. in fact it was lower and what we discovered was that they just sort of sulked they stayed in the hive and didn't go anywhere <laughs> so they kind of gave up 
They did, and they they seemed to they were still feeding, but their feeding rate was only half that of the bees in the um, pristine area. But they were living basically on the honey in the hive. So does that does that sort of I mean when you when you think about that I mean I I can understand the initial logic of yes there's fewer resources so these bees are going to work harder to get them but it seems also from a sort of evolutionary point of view that on occasion bees must go through times of hardship regardless of where they're located and it seems as though what you've demonstrated there is that they're quite well placed to ride that out. They are because they they store honey and the honey is used as, of course as a resource for feeding the young etc. But it, it can also be used to feed them as well. So depending on the size of the reserves in the honey in the in the hive, yes, they could they could um, hang out for quite some time. Hmm. And so I think what it's given us is a, a more of an insight into the fact that our modifications of the environment can be quite catastrophic for pollinators. And hmm. everything depends on pollination. And we all know America, for example, has this uh, problem with this mite, which is destroying their bee populations. And if um, bee, if pollinators disappear, the, virtually the whole of agriculture collapses. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a major problem, I think, that people are going to have to face in the future and we, we're hopeful that our, the method that we've developed now gives people um, a means to actually go out and see um, see it from the bees' point of view. You can measure what they're actually expending in terms of energy. We can also measure how much um, nectar they're actually feeding on. We we used, two, we used another isotope in this as well to measure their feeding rate, so we're able to see exactly how much nectar they're taking in. And we can then see whether a particular environment is, in fact, inimical for them, in other words, difficult for them or whether they can just sort of make it in that situation mm. look don it's 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 very interesting work is there a plan to sort of spread this now into other insect populations as well because it sounds like the technique's fairly interchangeable uh, it is in, in fact i suppose from our point of view we would like to look at native pollinators the bee of course is a european bee mm. and australia has an incredibly rich variety of native bees I think in the Perth area there's something like 20 or 30 uh, native bees. No one knows the first thing about them. Or they don't know what they really do, how important they are as pollinators of the native vegetation. We do know that the native bees can be a real... Sorry, the, the European bees can be a real problem because uh, many of them go feral. And once they go feral, in other words, they're, they're no longer in, in hives. They're actually living in um, tree um, nests, uh, nests and hollows and things like that. They cause a big problem for so many of the birds. Mm. Um, the black uh, uh, black-tailed cockatoos, for example, which are endangered, use uh, hollows in trees for nesting, and often they get occupied by the European bees as well. So, being able to study uh, the importance of the native pollinators, and they could be beetles and wasps as well as native bees. We we hope that's the area that, that we'll move into, so we get more of an understanding of how the native ecosystems are being maintained and what threats there are from other uh, other things like. European bees. Mm. Don, fascinating work. Uh, congratulations and, and keep expanding it because it sounds like uh, it's going to tell us a lot. Thanks so much for chatting to us today on Triple R. We hope so. Thank you. Thank you. It was Don Bradshaw who is the Chair of Zoology and a Senior Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Western Australia. I just love all these bee stories. It's, it fascinates me that we can do so much on such small critters because they, they're little. They're little, mm. but they're, they're really little. They are, they are, <laughs> they're little, but they're awesome. Three triple R. 
Now, I have been doing a bit of reading over the weekend because I'm not sure if uh, you people here in the studio have been aware, but this whole thing around virtual reality has been popping up. And, and there were movies years back um, that we all watched, probably called The Lawnmower Man, Pierce Brosnan, and those sorts of films that are really diving into virtual reality. But actually, they were kind of a fair way after the fact. Virtual reality has been around for a long time, and, and NASA in particular has been using VR systems um, not the hybrid reality ones we heard from the earlier guests, but simple VR systems since the 1950s. I think their earliest stuff was around, um, you know, the moon landing training. Um, but there were some pretty big problems with it because... Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of a problem. When you when you do a virtual reality simulation, it's just say of a, an aeroplane cockpit or a, something like that, um, you stimulate the eyes but you don't stimulate generally the um, vestibular system in the ear, which we use for balance, mm-hmm. or the stomach. And our brains use all three to determine uh, our position in space, in addition to our general feeling of gravity. You know, you can mm-hmm. feel that you're standing on the floor and all these things. And so if you only allocate information to one of those systems, you tend to get unwell. Well, some people get quite <laughs> unwell. Yes. And, you know, um, the Vomit Comet wasn't the only simulator that had this problem. Um, so, you know, any sort of simulation, there's a there's a group of people, not everyone, but there is a proportion of people who get quite sick. And seasickness. Yeah, seasickness is the same issue. So if you think about what's happening when you're on a boat, and if you've ever been on a boat, folks, and you get sick, the worst thing you can possibly do is put your head between your legs and look at the floor. Mm-hmm. Yep. Horizon all the way. Yeah. So people, people do this, and you've got to think about exactly what's happening when you do that. So you're looking at the floor, so your eyes are seeing a fixed position mm. of the floor, whilst your ear and your stomach are rolling with the waves, baby, and that's not good because your brain's going, hang on, which one is it? Mm. Now... As we move into a space at the moment where virtual reality systems are becoming commercially available, so there's a number of them on the market now, and you can go down to your local electronics shop, you know, today if you like, and buy one, spend somewhere between 100 and $700, you know, depending on whether you buy the low end or the high end, you have a scenario where you can engage in these virtual environments that are quite sophisticated and very detailed, et cetera, et cetera. The problem is, of course, is that they only deal with your eyes. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, the real question is, how are these going to work? Are these going to go well? And I'm not sure about you three, but I've been to the IMAX theatre and seen some 3D things. And I remember going with Dr. Crystal and seeing a, um, we saw the Hubble um, 3D oh, movie. Yeah. Yep. I was I was actually unwell when I went that day. Like not, not before before I got there, I, I had a bit of a cold. Oh, yeah, excellent. And so I wasn't feeling great. And after floating in space for about thirty five <laughs> minutes, I remember looking. Crystal didn't know, but I was sitting there every now and then. I just closed my eyes and take a break because it yeah. was yeah, it yeah. was it was a bit much, you know. But because lots of people say that that eye makes makes them feel very yeah, so unwell, and it's because their eyes are stimulated in the three D environment, mm-hmm. but not the rest of their bodies. So, um, so now we're in this this scenario where if you think about the sort of the scale of this business it's it's in the tens to hundreds of billion dollars this business mm-hmm. of virtual reality and it's seen as mm-hmm. you know the, the year of virtual reality is what the tech techos have sort mm-hmm. of claimed it um but they haven't dealt with this problem of you know issues that we have now the other thing that's interesting is that it affects men and women differently so it seems that about 60% of women have a problem with this and only about 30% of men. So for whatever reason, the, um, the way in which the, the two sexes are interacting with the, their, their balance system is slightly different. And so women are more susceptible. 
Now, one argument is that their acuity is higher, so they're actually they're seeing the effects at a more acute level with sharper than what men are seeing, and that's what makes them more susceptible, which quite could wipe you and smiling. I'm just saying, are you implying that women are just sharper in general than men? Is that what we're getting I at? don't think I'd get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not from me, Dr Shane. I'd, I'd just be nodding along with you. Yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens on the Twitter feed. Live, yeah. live, 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 live um, take it away. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's all possible. Women much smarter and cooler than men, says Dr Shane. Finally realises. That's right. And, and if, if the only half of the population that likes me afterwards is, you know, that's okay too. Um, all of them? Really? <laughs> you know, Mystic. Um, it's a diverse community. Um, so all of these things are, are sort of in, in the mix at the moment. And you've got to remember that some people look at this and go, oh, you know, it's just the gaming community. But I'm sorry, That's no, it all. is not. Architects are starting to use this for people to look through environments. You, you'll find that there'll be a day when there is a car dealership somewhere in the CBD where you couldn't possibly fit one and you will walk in and you'll put on the headset and you'll mm. interact yeah. with, with the very cars that you look at and the quality of the image will be pretty much as good as being mm. there. Yeah. And so all of the, these things are going to filter into our lives in, in different ways. And what we don't really know yet is how to sort of how to stop this problem from occurring and there's a lot of work being done to see if we can sort this out and there's there's a few there's a few tricks there they're trying um with regards to the the sort of delays in imagery the way in which the imagery is given to you and all this sort of thing but none of them are quite getting there so some of them are having um having an effect they're they're you know they're they're helping but they're not quite there so Is is anyone trying to manipulate your inner ear and 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 the way you know fluid moves in it is that is that crazy? I know it sounds oh, creepy, yeah. but so so actually it, it's interesting because let me tell you about about one uh, theory, and it's probably the only theory for this that that I've read that really makes sense to me. Um, but back in 1977, um, in the journal Science, there was a guy named um, Michael Treisman who put forward he was he was basically a cognitive psychologist, and he put forward this idea that one of the things that happens when you get poisoned is your um, you lose your balance. And so basically what you need to do is throw up, right? You need to get the poison out of your system. And what he said was that maybe one of the reasons as a result of the reverse of that is that when you start losing your balance, you throw up, right? So those two things are connected. So this could be an evolutionary outcome of the fact that when, when we get poisoned, we lose our balance and our bodies say, get that crap out of your body, purge it, throw up. So, you know, fast forward 50 years, you're on the roller coaster, you think you're being poisoned. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <Right away. laughs> uh, this, is, this is one of the things that happens. But this means that we have a bit of an insight into, into the way the body's linking all these systems up. Mm. Uh, is there a way to resolve it? Well, no, because it's, it's an in, entrenched system um, that we have that is really useful and that actually, you know, is something we can't turn off. So it will be interesting to see how the industry progresses as a result of this because this may be an inherent flaw that we just can't get out of and if you only deal with one of the sensors for our position in space then you'll always have this sort of problem yeah it'd be really interesting to know how many sensors you need to stimulate i mean i'm thinking environmentally wouldn't it be cool if you could take someone to an environment and walk them through that environment but rather than just seeing things they're hearing things and they're smelling things mm, yeah. so if you could do those three sensors would, would that be enough potentially to reduce yeah. this issue so and you think about the travel implications rather than people flying all over the world and burning up you know fossil fuels mm. They could go there in a virtual sense, but mm. with more stimuli. So the smells and the sounds that are characteristic of that area. I mean, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, and 
think this this was one of the things I was going to sort of suggest to people. If there's, if there's researchers out there who want to do a good study at the moment and get the publication done really easily, design a simple system where you can simulate several of these and not the others yep. and then isolate which pairs exactly. are having the most importance. So, so if gut and ear is most important over eyes or eyes and gut, then you can determine that with some carefully arranged experiments to say, well, okay, as long as you get the ear involved as well, you can get away with these VR yep. headsets and they'll all be fine. But it's a huge industry. It's one we're going to have to work out. I, I find it fascinating because of that, that ocular interaction mm. with uh, you know, our external environment yep. is so important to us. But it's, um, it's not simple. And when you're talking about something like potentially two-thirds of people getting sick, that's something an industry is going to have to deal with. You know, they'll have to have your local electronic store will have to have a vomit room where you try it out, <laughs> see how you go. And, Work experience. Uh, Buzz not yeah, cleaning that up. That could be it. So because it's actual vomit. I know. Yeah, that's right. Virtual vomit would be fine. Yeah. Yes. Well, we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It Team. Thank <laughs> nice you segue. Very much. Uh, the next show is a cooking show, folks. So you can enjoy that. Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. We'll chat again next week. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.